my talk title was advertised as uh, colonizing space. And that word colonization carries such baggage over the past couple of centuries that I think we, uh, it's time to just call them space settlements. In fact, I think it's even a little more accurate. I want to offer what I call a rational assessment of people's ambitions and dreams of settling uh, space. And I was, let me just lead off by saying predicting space, predicting the future is hard. And I want to show you something. I have three postcards from the year 1900 that the illustrator was asked to predict what life might be like in the year 2000. And I just want to show you these postcards. Okay, here's one. Uh, they imagined that steamships would also have railroad wheels on them because steamships were big and the railroad was big. So, of course, in 100 years, you would combine the two of them and you would just drive right off the ocean onto the land. Here's another one. Of course, everyone would just be floating on the water because, of course, that's what we want to do <laughs> in the future. Here's my favorite. Remember, this is 1900. Uh, powered air, airplanes began in 1903. But, of course, people wanted to fly. And so here people are just flying. Not imagining that if any of those fell out of the sky, you would just be dead. So predicting the future is often an exercise in extending what you already know, but not inventing something completely new out of left field and out of the ether. So it's possible to predict the future within 10 years, maybe 20, because often that is an extension of what you know. But beyond 30 or 40 years, 50 years, it's an almost hopeless exercise, given the pace of technology that we have, given the rate at which technology converges in ways that are not obvious and could not have been extrapolated at the time you engaged in that exercise. <clears throat> I also want to offer you some what I would call embarrassing quotes, space quotes. Often people look in the literature and they find, they find futurists and they pick the one or two predictions they made and say, look, they knew the future. Well, I did the opposite of that. I collected quotes from important people that were just plain wrong. They're often just forgotten because we like to remember the hits and not the misses. Here, <clears throat> we are remembering the misses. From 1900, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, a New York City newspaper. It is scarcely possible that the 20th century will witness improvements in transportation that will be as great as were those in the 19th century. That has got to be the most boneheaded comment ever printed in a newspaper editorial. Again, they were riding high on steamships, and uh, the internal combustion engine car was a recent invention. The, the country was crossed by railroads, and they're saying, oh my gosh, nothing can top this. And in three years, we have an airplane. 66 years after that, we've landed on the moon. So this exercise in predicting the future is rife with embarrassing moments. How about this one? 
Man will not fly for 50 years. Uh, who said that? Wilbur Wright to his brother, Orville, in 1901, two years before they both flew. You think if the two guys who invented airplanes can't get it right, what hope do the rest of us have? Here's another one. No flying machine will ever fly from New York to Paris. This is a trend that will continue up until 1957. The trend is there is some advance, and people constrain that advance. So this quote came out after we knew how to fly. Now they're saying we'll never fly to Paris. Who said this? Orville Wright, 1908. How about this one? Landing and moving around on the moon offers so many serious problems for human beings that it may take science another 200 years to lick them. Science Digest, August 1948. It did not take 200 years after this. It took how long? 20 years, 21 years. So these are people who should know better. This is a, a magazine that thinks about science. Technology was surely advanced then. So what was missing? Well, let's keep going. <clears throat> Man will never reach the moon, regardless of all future scientific advances. Radio pioneer Lee DeForest. What's significant about this is that it's on February 1957. This is six, seven months before Sputnik. Nine months before Sputnik. Launched October 4th, 1957. The moment that happened, the instant that happened, all of this changed. All of a sudden, the technology became real. The ambitions became real. And then people went back into the future predicting business, but then they began to overpredict. It happened basically overnight. A manned lunar base will be in existence by 1986. Who says that? The Futurist, 1967. The Apollo program is already in progress. So we know space is within access to our technologies. But we're assuming that we'll continue at that rate. Sorry, I didn't finish the quotes on the other side. <clears throat> we assumed that what was in progress would continue unabated. And that assumption was based on deeply false premises. Let me not use the word false, I'll be more severe and say deeply delusional premises. A premise that I will attempt half of this talk to convince you of. How about this? I'm convinced that before the year 2000 and over, uh, is over, the first child will have been born on the moon. Who said that? Werner von Braun, the guy who invented the Saturn V rocket. So people are, again, thinking that the pace that had been put into play was something natural for the human spirit, the human DNA. What else were we predicting for the year 2000? By the year 2000, 50,000 people will be living and working in space. 50,000. I checked. In the year 2000, there were three people living and working in space <laughs> on the International Space Station. Mixed in with this is also some foggy memory particularly on my side of the ocean, okay? We, in America, we think of ourselves as space pioneers. It's easy to think that because we landed on the moon. It's easy to think that we were driven by 
a certain sort of intrinsic uh, patriotism, an intrinsic pride. But if you unpack it, that's not what shows up. Here's a quote. I'm not that interested in space. John Kennedy said that to the head of NASA in 1962. The man who we all associate with launching the Apollo program. This came out of his mouth. This is, whether we like it or not, a race. Everything we do ought to be tied to getting to the moon ahead of the Russians. John Kennedy to James Webb. This is not, oh, it's exploration, isn't it beautiful? It is, there was no such dialogue. Here's a bust of President Kennedy in Kennedy Space Center, Florida. And chiseled in the granite. I believe this nation should commit itself before the decade is out to put a man on the moon, return him safely to Earth. We all can hear those words. They're stirring. What they left out is the speech where that quote comes from was to a joint session of Congress six weeks after Yuri Gagarin came out of orbit. The United States did not have a rocket that wouldn't explode on takeoff, a human-rated rocket. So we freaked out. Does that translate in the translators? Freak out? <laughs> I don't know how else to say that. There's no, that's the word. We freaked out. So what he says before this is, if we are to show the world the path of freedom over the path of tyranny, then we need... If the events of recent weeks, wouldn't even mention Yuri Gagarin's name, if the events of recent weeks are any indication of this, the impact of this adventure on the minds of men everywhere, then we need to show the world the path of freedom over the path of tyranny. It was a war driver. That was in the same speech where this quote was uttered. Why didn't we put that in the, in the granite? Plenty of space to chisel in, beat the Russians. That's left out. Well, yes, we went to the moon. Yes. Yes. Yes, we did this. Driven by Cold War fear. So all the people who are not thinking Cold War fear, thinking that going to the moon was just the thing people do, when we stopped going to the moon, people cried foul. People said, we just need the charisma that Kennedy had and that'll fix everything. We just need the political will like we used to have. No, what we needed is Russians who want to go to the moon ahead of us. <laughs> there was a side benefit. This photo, Apollo 8. This is the 50th anniversary this year of that photo, December. Apollo 8 goes to the moon, orbits a dozen times, 15 times, does not land. It is the first time we leave Earth for another destination, ever. In some ways, this is more significant than Apollo 11. No one had left Earth before. Yeah, we go into orbit. People like to think of that as leaving Earth, but not really. In a schoolroom globe, 
this International Space Station is orbiting half a centimeter above the globe. And we've all sort of bought into the idea that that's space. To an astrophysicist, that's just driving around the block. After this photo was taken, here's what happened, something unexpected. We went to the moon to explore the moon, and we discovered Earth for the first time. No one had seen this before. Spaceship Earth. Earth as nature intends you to view it. Not with color-coded countries as in your schoolroom, but with just oceans and land and clouds. This was the beginning of the modern environmental movement. What happens between 1968 and 1973? What happens? 1970, Earth Day is established. Why didn't we establish that in 1960 or 1950? We were going to the moon when Earth Day was established. DDT was banned in 1973. Leaded gasoline was banned in the United States. Many other countries followed suit thereafter. Comprehensive Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act. The organization Doctors Without Borders was founded. That was founded in Switzerland. It, they probably would have formed anyway, but would they have called themselves Without Borders? I don't think so. Where do you even get that state of mind? Unless you saw Earth from space. So you can ask, what is the cost-benefit of going into space? This one, I think, was unimagined. That all of a sudden, Earth would have a shared fate in how good or bad we shepherd its future. So now you have to ask, what's your budget for space exploration? A series of talks at this conference? Talk about weather satellites, missions to Mars, this sort of thing. You should know this. If your monies are established by a tax base funded by an electorate, research with unknown returns on investments in fields not yet fully understood by the public. This is really hard to get money for. But you know what it's not hard to get money for? I'll tell you. Here it is. I was invited to write a, a chapter for the Columbia History of the 20th Century on exploration. And I hemmed and hawed, and I finally agreed. I was going to make a grid of all the most expensive things civilization has engaged in. And look at how much it cost and what they did to get the thing paid for. And I thought to myself, if we're going to send people to Mars, I find that on the grid and find out what motivated the people to pay that. And then we could learn from the history of civilization. When I did this exercise, I arrived at only three drivers that enabled a nation to commit large sums of money. One is obvious. War. 
people will spend almost any amount of money to not die. And so what kind of projects come under war and defense? The Apollo program, initiated out of fear of the Russians. The Manhattan Project, huge diversion of funds in the middle of the Second World War by the United States with an international team of scientists. The Great Wall of China, a huge undertaking. The interstate system in the United States, it's just roads, of course. However, the interstate system, roads built to a specification established by Eisenhower after he saw the Autobahn in Germany in the Second World War. The Autobahn did not wash out in the rain. It supported troop movements and tanks. And he said, I want one of those. In came the interstate system, $100 billion. In fact, the interstate system cost the same as the Apollo program, motivated by not wanting to die, moving materiel and personnel around. What's number two? This is not as common today. Used to be common, praise of deity or royalty. From that, you get the pyramids, and you get Versailles, you get like cathedral building in Europe as an activity. Huge investments in financial and, 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 uh, and, in, and physical capital. Today, royalty is not as powerful over nations as it was 300, 400, 500 years ago. So the, you, know, you don't see this today so much. The third, another obvious one, but it's a total of three, promise of economic return. There you get Columbus and Magellan and Lewis and Clark. There's no end of this list. So what this comes down to is, I don't want to die, and I don't want to die poor. That will invest in practically anything. Notice on this list is not, let's just, let's explore, let's do this for science, let's do this because it's in our DNA. You could make that argument, and you could fund below a certain radar level of project, depending on the wealth of your nation. A billion here, a billion there, depending on the wealth of your nation. You could do projects that, where this is not relevant. But once the price starts getting higher, you're up against people's personal rejection of what might look like the activity of others for their own gain. Whereas everybody benefits if the nation sees an economic return or if you don't die. So these three forces, war, royalty, economics, are powerful. So I've used this to judge whether anything will ever happen. Are we going to put humans on Mars? Only if somebody judges that you have to do it, otherwise you would die. Kings are not going to do it anymore. Or somebody's going to make a buck. That's my cynicism that I'm bringing to this conference, based on the history of human conduct. Predicting the future, another example of how hard it is to predict the future, Collier's Magazine had a famous, now famous series of articles on our future in space. This is early. This is before Sputnik, before anybody launched anything. But we had the science. We had some of the engineering. And we had the artists. In a series of conferences, 
at the Hayden Planetarium in New York City, a series of articles came out. And people were delighted. The world's first spacesuit. How and where we'll use it. This is a level of enthusiasm that is building. And there's a whole discussion about the physiology of going into space and the challenges. And it's on the right-hand side, meteorites, cosmic rays, weightlessness, glare, disorientation, boredom, irritability, and fatigue. Those last three would affect us even if we're not in space. I don't know why they put it up there. That's just that's why they would list that as a priority. So uh, here's one that will matter if you want to have settlements. They're thinking about this. Who owns the universe? Who owns it? You're going to settle? You're going to pitch tent? Does anybody own it? Why would you have unlimited access on the surface of another planet when you don't have unlimited access on this planet? On this planet, we're all human, yet you have to show papers to cross an artificial border established by politics. That's how we conduct our affairs on this Earth. Any reason to think that's going to be different in space? What else do we have here? Can we survive in space? People had to think this through. Let's keep going. Man will conquer space soon. We're getting closer. Okay, we're not just the spacesuit now. Top scientists tell how in startling, it's startling pain. Here we go. What are we waiting for? So the engineering is in place. They just don't have money for it yet. So they're waiting for the money. They don't know that the money will only come if someone finds diamonds on the moon or if we're at war in some technological composition with an adversary. They don't know this upon writing this article. They have no idea. Here's another one. Man on the moon. Let's take a look inside. This is a supply uh, um, ship. The fuel canisters are the spheres. There's other supplies on the central zone. And you can look at, this is inside the moon ship. This is highly ambitious. There's like 30 people there. How do you get, I don't know. And I like it's got this little antenna sticking out the side, you know. You'd have to build this, launch it, get it to the moon, and have, now, is anyone asking, why would you do this? They're, they're, they're enchanted by the capacity to think it through more than they are the reality of whether anyone will actually do it. Then we go beyond moons. How about Mars? Can we get to Mars? Is there life on Mars? Mars. Mars, we knew Mars has an atmosphere, so you can have an airplane, but it's a much thinner atmosphere, so you need huge wingspan relative to the fuselage so that you can get the lift that you need. Now, these look like really heavy tanks. I don't know how they got these tanks to Mars. That's not really discussed. It's just there. Again, why are you on Mars? You want to live there? Okay. What's motivating it? What's paying for it? Here's the problem. You might say, private enterprise will do it. No. My read of history tells me, no. 
Let me repeat that. No. Not because I don't want it to be so. I'm just a realist about this. Let me tell you how much of a realist I am. I published a book a couple of years ago. It was called Space Chronicles, Facing the Ultimate Frontier. That's not the title I submitted it with to the publisher. The title I submitted it with was Failure to Launch the Dreams and Delusions of Space Enthusiasts. And the publisher said, no, you can't, we can't have that title. It's, it's got the word failure in it, and they were spooked by the language of the title. So it had a much more pleasant-sounding uh, um, Space Chronicles. Here's why it's not going to happen. There is no capital market valuation of the space frontier. It's expensive. Here's how that meeting will go. I run a company, and I want to send people to Mars. No one has done it before. I invite in the investors. This is how capitalism works. You have investors. And they ask questions. They say, um, how much will it cost? Well, a lot. Uh, what will be the return on this investment? I don't know, probably nothing. <laughs> well, is it dangerous? Yes. Will people get hurt? They'll probably die. <laughs> that is a three-minute meeting with the venture capitalists. <laughs> the history of this exercise is that governments lead. Governments have long-term interest in the success of technology over a longer period of time than any corporate entity could possibly justify. Corporations have quarterly reports, annual reports, shareholders. A government can say, we will do this and it'll pay back in 10 or 20 years. And just do it. As governments have been doing throughout the history of this exercise. The first Europeans to the New World was not the Dutch East India Trading Company. It was Columbus sent by the Queen of Spain. Italy wouldn't even send them. They were busy building cathedrals. That's why the New World does not speak Italian. They speak Spanish in all of South America, almost all of South America. If you want to talk about the reach of a country, what is, what is her motivation? A little bit of hegemony, but it's primarily economics. Give me a short route to India. He thought he found India. Hence, the native people in North America were called Indians. I'm just amazed that stuck. <laughs> to this day, I don't know who made that stick as a name for the Native Americans. Uh, before we had railroads, Lewis and Clark mapped the whole West um, western frontier of the United States. Space shuttle cargo. Why was NASA bringing cargo to the space station? Like, why? If NASA is going to be a frontier agency, you bring in corporations to do the routine things which they can do efficiently and effectively. That's what SpaceX has been doing recently. SpaceX brought up some supplies to the space station. Banner headlines. New era in space. What will happen next? Will private enterprise lead? They just took cargo to the space station. Cargo. 
that actually should have been happening decades ago. Anytime anything happens that's routine by a government, it should then be farmed out to private enterprise, paid by the government. The government could have whatever reasons it needs, geopolitical, for security reasons, whatever is the reason, economic, with a long-term goal. Let's take a look at Mars as a modern object of our affection. First, before we go to Mars, let's first talk about Antarctica. Uh, Antarctica is warmer and wetter than any place on Mars. I don't see people lined up I'm sorry, I don't see that. Gee, I want to have condos in Antarctica. Doesn't stop people. By the way, I will never stop someone with ambition. Because ambition here could lead to other things here, even if this higher goal is not achieved. So I will never stand in anybody's way. unless you ask me my opinion. Um, what got a lot of attention the last few years was Mars One, announced by Baz Lonsdorf. To me, what was intriguing about this is the Dutch were explorers from way back, mostly with economic interests, as in on the Earth, in the age of the great ex periods of exploration. And so we have a Dutch person doing the same thing now with Mars. He wants to create a permanent human colony of four people beginning in 2032. So he's, he's, he's got investors, okay? How's he gonna pay for it? He's going to televise it like the Olympics. Now, it takes nine months to get there. That's a lot of television time to fill, but okay, it's a, it's a, it's a plan. What distinguishes Mars One is that when you go, there are no plans to bring you back. So the one in Mars One also stands for one way. <laughs> I had to ask him. He was on my television show, Star Talk. This is Baz Lonsdorf. Uh, this is my office. That's an actual Saturn V rocket off his left shoulder. Well, I'm, I mean a model of the Saturn V. Here, this is two minutes. Just watch this. Who are these people? Yeah. Want to take one? They don't like it here on Earth. Are they venture types? They're the people who want to die young. <laughs> what is? Who are these people? I think that what what we see first of all is that it's uh, it's everyone, it's all kinds of people. It's men and women, old and young. Uh, it's engineers, of course, scientists, but also politicians, lawyers, soldiers. It's all kinds of people. And I think it's actually very comparable to the kinds of people that explored uh, the Earth, which could also have been anyone. Anyone could step on a ship and sail across the ocean. Uh, anyone could decide to leave their village for new opportunities. I was looking up some numbers back then, 500 years ago, in the Great Age of Exploration. Most of a crew would not return alive. Look at Magellan's crew, how many he went out with, how many he came back alive. I mean, in some cases, you most of your crew. That's just here on Earth and breathe the air. 
food was there waiting for you landed. So are there any projections of survival rate? The design of our mission is not detailed enough yet to give percentages. I, I am certain that it's not going to be a safe mission to Mars because there's no such thing as a safe mission to Mars. I think it will be more risky than climbing Mount Everest, which has a 2.5% risk of not returning alive, and hopefully less dangerous than climbing K2, which has a 25%. Exploration has always been dangerous, and what's important for Mars 1 is that we identify the risks, make sure that everybody knows them, not just our candidates, for, for them it's the most important, but also our investors, our media partners, the audience. And then if something does indeed go wrong, just like with the Apollo program, understand that this was something that happened. You're not guaranteeing survival. That's inherent being on the frontier. All of our candidates know that this is a risky mission and they know that they are going on a mission that, uh, that has these kinds of dangers. Sorry about that commercial at the end there, and uh, the audio. So, uh, I, on that very program, I invited on someone who had signed up for the Mars One mission, and I had him on video link. And he was 20-something, and I said, what does your, uh, are you married? He said, yes, yes. And I said, well, what, what does your wife say about this? And she said, he said, oh, she, she encouraged me to go. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, one point about colonization is that it may be self-limiting. Uh, and I'll explain that in a moment. The, the Fermi paradox is a well-known um, question asked by Enrico Fermi. He said, you can actually create a civilization on a planet, send out spaceships, let's say two spaceships, go to discover two planets, build resources in situ, and then have each of those go discover two more planets, and two, and so this doubles up every sort of generation. You can actually completely populate every planet in the entire galaxy on a timescale short compared with evolution, like 100 million years or so. It's not billions. So he's saying if this was done at all, there should be aliens on every planet. So where are they? I don't see them. This was the question posed. So we have to ask, what are the solutions to the Fermi paradox? Maybe the aliens have come, and as Michio Kaku said this morning, they looked at Earth and noticed there's no sign of intelligent life and kept going. That's one possibility. Another possibility, which relates to whether colonization could be self-limiting, is that if you have the DNA to colonize, that's a certain kind of, I can't stay here, I have to go there. I want that planet. So you do this. But so does the other person who goes to that planet. And you rapidly reach a point where you start wanting planets that have already been taken. And you end up imploding with violence because your colonization urge is left unsatisfied as the galaxy starts running out of planets. So one of the solutions to the Fermi paradox is that any civilization with the urge to colonize that badly 
will self-destruct by killing themselves trying to colonize. That's a relatively new concept in how to resolve this paradox. But one thing I think is clear, whether or not we pitch tent on Mars and live there, which I'm skeptical of, what will certainly attract people is tourism. No question about it. I would give up years of vacation time and money to go on one trip to Mars. This is portrayed for the moon, but Mars either. Tourism cannot be under-recognized as an economic driving force. You don't want it to be a military reason, and kings are not going to do it anymore, so it's got to be economic. But if you want to go and not live in a HAB module, which is Earth on the moon, or Earth on Mars, you want to actually be on another planet, you're going to have to terraform. My favorite word of the last 20 years. Turn Mars into Earth. Seed the soils, the atmosphere. Introduce microbes that, that um, release oxygen, such as what happened in the early Earth. Now, we, we don't have this power yet. If we did, we could just make any planet we want and just move there. Then you don't have to come back because you can breathe the air when you get there. Columbus could breathe. People are saying, oh, this is like the era of the great explorers. No, it's not. Columbus could breathe the air when he got off his ship. He could fix his ship because the trees in the New World were made out of wood just as they were in Europe. On Mars, you can't do that. So I, I'm thinking if we're going to colonize and, be, and do something other than live in a habitat module, you'll want to do this. There are people saying we need to be a two-planet species in case an asteroid comes and renders us extinct, as it did with the dinosaurs. My, and Stephen Hawking feels strongly about this. I have a rebuttal to that. It's whatever effort it takes to terraform Mars and ship a billion people there, it's probably less effort to deflect the asteroid. I'm thinking. A little less effort. So for me, I care about practical solutions that people will actually enact, rather than the dream states that concern people most when they're thinking on the frontier. The same with AI. People are worried we're going to make a robot that's going to sort of take over the world. No, we're going to create AI that like serves our various needs. The self-driving car is not going to be tasked with making your coffee or with flying the airplane. This very tuned AI that we have plenty of places for that to go in our society. In practice, who's going to make the one thing that does everything? when you can make a hundred things that do each thing perfectly. I think in practice it's not going to happen, even though it occupies the fear of so many people. What you want to do is reduce the cost to space, no matter what. By the way, how much money is being spent on space? You should emblazon this in your head. Here it goes. This is the pie chart. $330 billion a year is spent on space. Equal parts in commercial infrastructure and products and services. This includes businesses that run on GPS, 
It includes direct TV, uh, weather satellite reporting. The United States is the 44 billion in the upper corner. We spend about half again as much on space as the entire rest of the world. But each of those two small segments are small compared with the total business of space. So there is money to be made in space. By the way, the governments went to space first. Just let's remember that. They took the risks. They absorbed the risks. Commercial space follows. We all saw the Falcon Heavy launch. Um, I'd like to show it again. Do you want, do you want to see it again? Yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> I, I trimmed it down to the last 30 seconds, 45 seconds, here we go. couple of things I want you to notice there's will be water getting poured onto the launch pad T-minus 30 seconds which absorbs vibrations from the engines see the water pouring now SpaceX fucking heavy on the, on the left so when on ignition all that water evaporates T-minus 15 standby for terminal count so that's most of the cloud that you see after it clears the cloud there's no more water to evaporate six to begin to throttle down prior to booster engine cutoff and separation two and a half minutes into flight. GNC trajectory looks good on the Falcon Heavy. So it's still accelerating as you can see in kilometers per hour. Reports show that the M1D engine performance is nominal. Side boosters have begun to throttle down in preparation for the upcoming shutdown in 20 seconds. So what's most amazing about this launch is not the launch itself, but the fact that he's reusing 
Maces of this launch. Side booster shut down and separation. Inside shut down. Side boosters. Let's go for just another minute. Successful separation. We're coming up on Nico in shutdown. Stay safe. We're now high enough so that the fairing no longer needs to be enclosing the payload. So no need to carry that weight any further to just drop the fairing. That happens in a few seconds. That's the fairing around the car. It just separated. Yeah, that was a pretty American thing to do. <laughs> you have the most powerful rocket in the world, and what do you do? You send a car into space. <laughs> um, so uh, it's a dummy payload. I mean, it's a real car, but um, I joke that I wonder uh, who's... Is that a real body in there? You're trying to... How do you get rid of a body? That's... Um, <laughs> um, the Falcon Heavy has half the thrust of the Saturn V rocket. That's why they kept qualifying it, saying it's the most powerful rocket in the world today. The Saturn V was twice that power at 308,000 pounds of thrust. Sorry, we still use pounds. Um, there is a live feed of the spaceman driving this car. And it's surreal because things move slowly, but they move. So this is actual footage of this car in an, a transfer orbit to Mars around the sun. And the position of this payload is slowly changing relative to the sun and to Earth. So if you put it on your computer, it's just kind of, like I said, it's, see, that's Earth coming into view. It's like, okay, yeah. I'm pretty sure all the flat earthers it's really just a ploy so that they can get a free trip into space to be convinced of this. Uh, it's on an orbit from Earth that'll go out and meet Mars. And so if you're gonna send anything to Mars, this is a minimum energy transfer. And uh, that's kind of what you need to do. And you need heavy transport to bring people, supplies, and the like. The, I just gotta see this minutes later. It's truncated, but it's very cool. So the two boosters come back. And when you take the Emirates 380 Airbus and you land in the airport, they don't throw it away and bring out another one. They reuse it. This cuts your costs. So this is precisely there they are. the motivation. Those are the two boosters coming, coming back. Coming in like meteors, real, real fast. They're going to do a final burn here in just a moment. This is uh, amateur video of it. 
There's final burn one and two. Light travels faster two than sound. Two candles coming down. There they are. Uh, That's the double sonic booms. minimum energy transfer, you can get to the moon in three days, Mars in nine months, Jupiter 10 years or so, Saturn 20, Alpha Centauri, the nearest star system to Earth, 70,000 years. So whoever wants to say, let's colonize planets of other stars, there's a problem with the human physiology relative to the time that it takes to get there. If you're lucky you live 100 years, that is 1 700th of this time. So it seems to me we'd have to learn something new about the space-time continuum with a wormhole of some kind before we consider colonizing planets around other stars. We, Jupiter and Saturn don't have surfaces. They have moons with hard surfaces. Possibly we can think about that. Would you spend 20 years to do that, to live on a place that's not Earth? to live permanently? That's a question. Because you can do it, does that mean that you will? Here's something that is not fully uh, ex uh, embraced. Space, the first trillionaires, will be those who mine asteroids. Asteroids, the resources of the solar system. While you're mining it, maybe we, there's an asteroid out there that has our name on it. We ask you, could you please deflect that for us? And the governments get together and pay for the company that's already mining it to deflect it. Water in space costs $10,000 a pound. Sorry, I said pounds. Um, to put into orbit. If you get it from a comet for $5,000 a pound or $1,000 a pound, that's a business model. Surely vacations, Mars, Moon, and beyond. Again, I don't see settlements so much. There are companies ready to do this. Planetary resources. This is their landing page on the Internet. And you scroll down to sustain life in space. So if you do set up a, a, a Disneyland on Mars, you have to need supplies. So would you bring supplies from Earth? Not if you can get supplies from space and go from space to space. That's cheaper than launching something from Earth. So they want to control resources in space. They're going to have the first trillionaires if they pull this off. So 16,000 near-Earth asteroids, rich in resources, 2 trillion tons of water, 95% um, reduction in cost if you go space to space. They've already thought this through. It has a board. You know what else is on asteroids? Rare Earth metals, all right? These are the full range of rare earth metals off the periodic table. Rare earth metals are not so rare on earth, except they're hard to get to, and they're not everywhere. So uh, if you can get an asteroid that has plentiful supplies of these, our modern technology needs these to function. These are key components of our batteries, our cell phones, our communication devices. Not only those asteroids have precious metals, gold, silver, platinum group elements. 
And, of course, they have water. Plus, we've been to them before. Governments paid missions to visit asteroids. This is asteroid Ida. This is Galileo approaching Ida. It did not collide. That's actual footage as it got closer. It's not just a zoom in. This is Ida. We've been to asteroids. We understand them. We've even landed on comets. But perhaps the most important motivation, let's get back to the war motivation, defense. I don't want war to be a reason for anything. So let's rethink that. Maybe there's a security problem that we face as a world body. Let me remind you that the universe, there are many ways Earth wants to kill you. Earthquakes, tsunamis, this sort of thing. The universe wants to kill you too. Um, these, these, are, these will happen, but they're not as common. You know, you want to avoid black holes at all costs, yes. Uh, solar storms are bad, but what's much more real are impacts. And we have had extinction-level impacts in the past. So you could colonize other planets to mitigate this, but again, you have humans on two planets and one is about to go extinct. You're just going to sit there and say, goodbye, glad we're not there. No, you're going to deflect it, especially if you already have people who know how to mine them. So that's not, not, not worried about. But there could be one, you didn't want to be on Earth when that happened. This is a real crater in Arizona. It's a kilometer across, one and a half kilometers across. It can sink a 60-story building in the middle. We've been hit before, we will be hit again. You want a space program and you want to fund it? Say, we don't want to die. We don't want to go extinct. How's that for a defense program? You want evidence that this is real? Anyone here from Russia? Any Russians in the room? Russia, Chelyabinsk, a town, February 15, 2013. Forward-facing dashboard camera. Do you see a little dot of light in the middle? Watch this. That's full video and sound in the car. Now, for, <laughs> I'd always been told that the Russians are stoic people. <laughs> if I were driving that car, I would say, holy shit! The car would have at least... <laughs> and I know what I'm looking at, right? I would, <laughs> I would have at least reacted in some way. Uh, just to show you that we're in a shooting gallery, 17 meter, 10,000 tons, 40,000 miles per hour. The energy of 25 Hiroshima bombs. But it exploded 20 miles up. Again, apologize for the miles. 30 kilometers up. So a lot of the energy was diluted. And, but what it did, no one died. But it, the blast wave collapsed walls, shattered windows. The injuries were glass, shattered glass. And there's a time delay. That's how so many people got injured. They're sitting there eating breakfast. 
a bright light comes through the window. And so I wonder what that light is. And then they walk over to the window, look out the window, then the blast wave hits. The time delay between the light and the sound. Uh, here's an example of video in the town of Chelyabinsk. So that, that's the, the, the smoke that went just passed above them. So here it is, amateur video after it passed over. That's the shock wave. But there's a couple more. And we can laugh because no one died, but this is a compilation of the blast videos. And this is 17 meter asteroid. That's all. 17 meters, size of the stage. Where did he come from, right? <laughs> uh, warehouse structures are not reinforced typically, so they were the most susceptible to this blast wave. So what I like about this is the kids didn't run out of the room. It was like, oh, gee, what was that? Let me keep looking. Um, let me end with just a reflection on the value of even saying you want to go into space and doing so, even if the projects are not expensive or you're not colonizing yet. Because doing so can have effect, an effect on culture. First, let me say that space is a gateway subject into the sciences, all of these. Physics, planetary geology, biology, chemistry, medicine, all of this matters when you go into space. So it is the ideal driver of STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and math. And STEM fields are the engines of tomorrow's economy. So if you're in a sleepy country and you want to become an innovation nation, engage in some space projects. And all of a sudden, people rise up out of the, out of the pavement saying, I want to do that. I want to think that way. I want to invent something for that enterprise. And I go back to the 1960s in the United States, a time of technological hope. By the way, here is the GDP per capita of the United States decade by decade. In the decade we were going to the moon, it was the highest that it has been since. Percent change of 30, 34% between 1960 and 1970. It's been dropping ever since. I'm old enough to remember this. It was all about the future.
just the feeling that that was. I wasn't even, I didn't even know I wanted to be an astrophysicist yet, but I was being imprinted. This is the, the Unisphere in World's Fair in New York City with three rings around it, evocative of the three orbits of John Glenn. It was all about the future. Then we started um, acting on this. We, the movies, 2001, A Space Odyssey, a rotating space station. We started thinking of tomorrow. What will tomorrow look like? And I'm looking at some of these tall buildings on the right-hand side. This is all nationalities migrating to this city of the future. And I'm looking at that city of the future, and I'm saying, some of those buildings look like what you got outside here in Dubai. <laughs> I'm thinking, you all already made the city of the future. So this is the 1960s when we're thinking about this. It wasn't just the drugs that people took that made them think this way. It was a real surge of enthusiasm for what a future would bring, and everybody knew science and technology would deliver this. You don't get this by just hoping. You, you turn hope into reality. You go now to the 2020s. There, I swear that building is in the other drawing. I swear. So are all these buildings. This is already the city of the future. And you're going to have an expo just as I experienced in New York City in 1964. You've got this right here in this country. Just the feeling. And by the way, you're also going to Mars. You got it all, it's all there. Everything is in place to bring a force of nature onto the ambitions of a next generation of people. I know what that is. I know what that feels like. I experienced that. It's an experience that's kind of faded across the ocean for me. And I'm delighted to see a surgence of that here in the Middle East, elsewhere, in the Far East. So, and by the way, this is drawing on what is already a legacy from the golden age a thousand years ago. You're not pulling this out of nothing. It's got a precedent to lead the world in science, technology, engineering, and math. Every time I have an occasion, back in the United States, I tell people, what do we call our numerals? Arabic numerals. Of course, a thousand years ago, they were called Hindu numerals. Did you know that? In the Arabian Peninsula, they called them, because they came from there. But those numerals were fully developed in a full system of arithmetic and algebra, algebra, algorithm. These are Arabic words. I remind everyone back in the United States. From an era where people thought about the future and thought about what role science and technology would play. So whether or not you colonize, the very fact that space is on your agenda will transform your present and the future ambitions of everyone who participates. And this is a future I can't wait to see. Thank you.
So I'm glad you brought up uh, the UAE at the end because today we have some government officials here. We have the Minister of State for Advanced Sciences here. We have the Chief Innovation Officer of the UAE Space Agency. So, and you did mention previously that uh, the UAE reminds you of the 60s in the US. So what advice would you give them to sustain that, to learn from previous uh, experiences that other, other countries have and to sustain this so it doesn't die out. Uh, okay, I, I, have, I have an answer for you. Okay. So, again, it's by analogy to what we experienced in the United States. Through the 1960s, every next mission from Mercury to Gemini to Apollo went from one astronaut to two to three. Every next mission was more ambitious than the previous one. It went a little farther. It stayed a little longer. They brought more cargo. They did more things. This kept an interest level of the press and of the public. They could talk about new things each time. Okay. After we stopped going to the moon, and then we introduced the shuttle program, which from my view was boldly going where hundreds have gone before, each next mission was not more ambitious than the previous one. So the public had nothing to look forward to. And if the shuttle launch preempted your daily soap operas, you would complain to the TV station. True. So you want to avoid stagnation. If you're actually advancing a space frontier, make that the natural state of everything you do. Don't say, oh, we got to the moon, we're done. Let's just keep going to the moon and don't do anything more. Well, that gets old fast, believe it or not. So whatever are your ambitions, always have something more ambitious than that. That will stimulate ever more innovation and, um, and creativity in the people who support it. So Your Excellency, no pressure. Uh, moving on to the next question. So I'm glad you brought the role of media. And I wanted to ask you, as you know, the host of Cosmos and StarTalk, what role does media play in preparing, in exposing the next generation to advancements of science and technology instead of reality shows? And oh, well, yeah. I mean, it's everything. It's a good coverage of a, something that's never been done before will get very high percentage of eyeballs focused on it. So uh, we know this from the Olympics. You know, billions of, billions of people watch the Olympics. This is the model. Uh, could you up the microphone a little bit, please? Yeah, uh, thank you. So Baz Lundstrup's plan is to sell advertising time mm -hmm. during the broadcast of this trip in the model of the Olympics. And he costed out the Olympics, got a sense of what it is, figured that we can get more money going to Mars than watching someone on the luge. So he, that's his business model. And it's an interesting one. I don't think you can sustain that. He, maybe he can get the first couple of people there, but the 10th colony that heads out there, I don't know that he could sell it that same way. Okay. So that's my longer term uh, concern about that. Mm -hmm that ambition. Okay. And my last question is, and I heard you say this uh, Yeah, questions earlier. for the audience, too? Because uh, we're running out of time. Oh, okay. Uh, cool. But, I mean, people oh. can ask uh, later on. But my last question is, 
<laughs> is, yeah. So you talked about, you know, a lot of people ask, oh, why are we going to Mars? Why are we, why should we care about gravitational waves come from, uh, from far away galaxies? And, and what does it benefit me here on Earth? So I, I, I want you to reiterate that. That's uh, very selfish of you. Oh, uh, well. You want to discover gravity waves to benefit you. I guess so. <laughs> um, so as you may have known in the last couple of years, uh, we discovered gravity waves predicted by Albert Einstein 100 years ago and very sensitive equipment necessary to do so. We detected the collision of two black holes and their signal, the ripple in the fabric of space and time that has been traveling for 1.3 billion years. This event occurred 1.3 billion light years away. So it's been discovered, a Nobel Prize has been awarded for it just this past fall. And how does it benefit you? We have no idea. Now, if we had this conversation in the 1920s, there was a spate of Nobel Prizes given to physicists who discovered the quantum. And you would say, how does that benefit me? And the only answer I give is, I have no idea. But we have the benefit of hindsight. And I can tell you that it would take 40 years, at most 50, but the quantum would become the foundation of the modern IT revolution. There is no creation, storage, and retrieval of information, of digital information, without an exploitation of quantum physics. So all, everything we take for granted today, in fact, I've ran the numbers, approximately one-third of the world's GDP is traceable to information technology, itself only enabled by what physicists were doing in the 1920s, and if you had asked them, how does it benefit me, they would have no answer for you, and then you'd pull the budget from them because you wanted it to help you that day. And I'm saying, when you're doing frontier research, you cannot require it to assist you that day or even in the foresight of what anybody has in that moment. In 1917 or 1916, Einstein wrote down an equation for the stimulated emission of light. A minor branch of his total work, of his total output. And there it lay there with other quantum physics discoveries and why, who cares? 40 years later, it is the foundation of the laser. The laser is invented based on that equation. The laser. Was Einstein thinking, barcodes, yeah, that's what I want to do with this. A cosmetic skin peel, yes, this is. These are not his thoughts. The laser is arguably one of the most potent tools in the uh, laboratory arsenal with so many applications. You cannot require that anybody knows how it would apply in that moment. Great. And that takes foresight. That takes courage as a leader, as a politician, to say, I will make sure we fund this because this is the R&D of our country. A corporation is not going to fund it because it, has no, it can't add to the quarterly report or the annual report and maybe not even the decadal report, if such a thing existed. So the country has to say, one day this will create industries and we will get the tax benefit of those industries. That's what has to happen. And so you need that foresight. As any good, well-run corporation, 
no matter what and no matter the urge, will allocate that percentage that they agreed upon to R&D. Is it 5%, 6%, 10%? I'd like to see a future where all the, all the countries of the world, no matter how poor or wealthy you are, you say 10% is going to research. Whatever, I pick a number, but pick a number and let that be the number. Then it doesn't fluctuate every year, depending on the political winds of who gets elected or who is in power. Then the research community can have a constant figure on which to base their planning. And by the way, if the country gets wealthier, that's 7% of a bigger pot. So it's self-driven, because the wealth will be driven by that technology. Innovations in tomorrow's technology, so innovations in today's technology drives tomorrow's economies, period. Those are where the growth economies are coming from. You want to be a part of that? Value science, technology, engineering, and math. Without it, you'll just receive the goods of others and you'll be trailing behind. That's a, I, you could do that but not based on the energy I see coming through this conference and the enthusiasm and the, the, the steps, actual steps to just to see what India is doing now. Oh my, this is, this is, I'm loving every minute of it. Every minute. And I guarantee you, I can't guarantee this, I will say with high confidence that the fact that India is going to Mars People in the street will be proud of that. They might want to do something different with their lives. Realizing this country is doing something as a, as a mission statement. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We'll Thank take you one very question, much. the man in the back row. All right, all right. One question. What's, <laughs> what's the question? I'll do quick, I promise. Okay, all right. Did you have... Oh, oh sir, Father. sir, yes. Louder. I have a question about policy. Policy, yes. So how, how can policies expedite, expedite projects? Good, ex excellent question. <laughs> um, what we found, kind of by accident, but my reference is the United States, so allow me. Um, what we found, kind of by accident, is in the 1990s, there were certain questions we wanted answered in astrophysics that we realized we didn't have the intellectual breadth to address. And so how do you do this? So we got NASA to create a funding umbrella that was not stovepiped into a specific scientific discipline. And it was called the Origins Program. Notice that's not chemistry, math. it's just Origins. And you say, okay, what is the origin of the oceans of Earth? Well, did it come from volcanoes? Maybe. Did it come from comets? Maybe. Some combination of the two. I have to talk to a geologist. We get together now. I'm looking for life in extreme environments in space. There's extreme environments on Earth where life thrives. Lake Vostok in, in Antarctica, 
is a completely sealed volume of water that's been under ice for tens of thousands of years. There may be life forms there that have no counterpart anyplace else in a very specific environment that could be analogized to the subsurface oceans of Europa, a moon of Jupiter that's frozen on the outside, liquid on the inside. I gotta find a biologist to talk about this. So you know what happened beginning in the 1990s? Journals started rising. The Journal of Astrogeology, of, 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 what's the one with astro, uh, astrobiology? Journal of Astrobiology. You started stapling together astro with other roots from other sciences. Actually, that began a little earlier in the 80s when we had astroparticle physics. These are astrophysicists worried about the particle accelerator conditions of the Big Bang. So we're talking to particle physicists with our astrophysics. So once you start cross-pollinating disciplines, whole other areas of discovery unfold. So in terms of policy, not only should funding enable this, not only enable it, but promote it with these kinds of funding umbrellas. You create a center for something that connects two departments at a university. Normally you don't see each other, but now you've got to come to this building where the two have to come together. I see you over, over coffee. And so I was just thinking about this planet. What do you think? Well, the electrical field and the life and the this, and we have a new conversation. Yes. In addition, what you need and what you want is a way to transfer scientific discovery to technology. My physics professor in college discovered nuclear magnetic resonance. He's a physicist. This is where the nucleus of an atom can be made to resonate in the presence of an electromagnetic field. It sounds obscure, and it was at the time. By the way, he's interested in molecules in space. That's his interest. He figures this out, gets a Nobel Prize for it. Later on, a medical technologist said, wait a minute, if you can distinguish this nucleus from that nucleus, that means you can tell this atom from that atom. If you design a cavity to make this happen, they then invent the MRI, the magnetic resonance image. They left out the N, because it's the N-word, the other bad N-word, <laughs> the nuclear. People don't want to go into a device that has the word nuclear on it. Um, the magnetic resonance imager is nuclear magnetic resonance, arguably the most potent machine in the arsenal of the medical doctor to diagnose your body without cutting you open. And it separates atoms by their mass. So you need a way for that to happen. And that way the frontier of science can become product that then enhances our lives. If you do that, oh my gosh, invite, invite, invite me for the party. <laughs> All right. Thank you.